Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Rebella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, we've been bopping around in this ocean and coastal uh, space on the American Shoreline for about five years now. And all the all along the way, I have to say, uh, we have occasionally come across the discussions in the professional press and in the science literature related to ocean and coastal matters, and sometimes in the popular press, the discussion of El Nino and La Nina, uh, atmospheric and oceanographic conditions that have a lot of impact on what happens on the planet Earth, particularly in the ocean and coastal realm. And uh, I have to say, Tyler, in all of the years that we've been knocking around that subject and touching on it here and there, I really not have a, don't have a full grasp and understanding of what all this is about. And I'm thinking today we might make some progress on that topic. I sure hope so, because I, too, am afflicted with uh, a, a real a, a knowledge of the buzz terms, but not really a, a complete knowledge of what they mean. And focusing, of course, today on El Nino and La Nina, I think some of the best names I, I can think of. I mean, just very compelling, easy to remember. They find their way uh, into news broadcasts. I mean, my entire life. I have memories of hearing about El Nino or La Nina. And I also know that my whole life that El Nino meant something like, uh oh, it's an El Nino year. Didn't always turn out to be memorable, mm -hmm. but it was definitely in the zeitgeist my whole life. Yet I, I just never really got to understand what it means. And I, I've got to confess at this point, I'm almost like, doesn't mean anything at all. Is this even yeah. relevant? I mean, with climate it's change, that I don't know. <laughs> with climate change, is it even relevant? So uh, I'm excited today to really get to the bottom <laughs> of it. And we've got an amazing guest, a tr a, a, the guest to talk us through El Nino, La Nina, what they mean, how, wh what they mean in the face of climate change, which is the other piece of all of this, is that all of these systems are in motion. Well, we do. I mean, incredible guest joining us today on the American Shoreline uh, podcast is Nathaniel Johnson. He is a NOAA meteorologist uh, in joining us from Princeton, New Jersey. He is in the NOAA Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory. And uh, he and others at NOAA author what is called the ENZO blog, which uh, is a uh, is a web-based blog that explains and tracks the El Nino, La Nina phenomena and uh, is really, really a high-level technical uh, update uh, for all the professionals out there. Um, it's great. And uh, they have been tracking the development this year of El Nino, Tyler, and the implications of that. And uh, so uh, we reached out to, to Nat, and uh, I'm really looking forward to the show. Me too, ladies and gentlemen. It's going to be a good one. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. Support for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today comes from Geodynamics, an NV5 company. Geodynamics' team of specialists provide accurate surveys of complex coastal environments around the world using the latest technology in marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing. With customized vessels and sensor configurations, Geodynamics delivers meticulous data products to answer their clients' toughest 
questions. Visit nv5geospatial.com or geodynamicsgroup.com to learn more about geodynamics and their solutions that improve lives. And from the Coastal Zone Foundation. The Certified Coastal Practitioner Program from the Coastal Zone Foundation offers courses covering 11 different subject areas, including coastal engineering, ecology, geology, project management, and more. The CCP program emphasizes a multidisciplinary approach to coastal zone management, setting you apart from the competition and demonstrating your commitment to best practices and a code of ethics in your field. With modules available online or as live short courses, the CCP program is accessible to coastal professionals at all stages of their careers. Learn more at coastalzonefoundation.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the CNT Daily Blast newsletter for the latest news and updates from around the American shoreline. Want to support our work? Learn more about sponsorship packages at coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Well, Nathaniel Johnson, we appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule as a NOAA meteorologist uh, to talk to us and our listeners about El Nino and La Nina and what all of the implications of this are. Thank you very much for joining us on the American Trailer Podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. So uh, I hope I can help to demystify El Nino and La Nina for your listeners. Great. Well, there's nowhere to go but up in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Before we jump into the technical details, uh, would you be willing to uh, or share with our listeners a little bit about your personal professional background, how long you've been at NOAA, and uh, what your responsibilities are at the NOAA Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab? Sure. So, um, yep. So, I have been uh, at the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab, which just referred to as GFDL, um, for about eight years. So, before that, I got my... Um, uh, I got a my bachelor's in environmental sciences and policy at, from Duke University, then my PhD at uh, in meteorology at Penn State University. Um, so after getting my PhD, I moved about 5,000 miles to the west, um, did a postdoc in Hawaii for a few years, and briefly spent some time at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography um, at UC San Diego, and then came back to uh, to central New Jersey and I actually grew up in central New Jersey so not too far from from where I grew up um, so and my work um, primarily focuses on studying climate predictability um, and variability so understanding uh, how we can predict climate from weekly to monthly to seasonal time scales and also how large-scale climate patterns uh, may be projected to change in a warming climate and so because I study um, climate predictability, it always brings me to, you know, connecting with El Nino and La Nina. Um, so, you know, as you mentioned, I'm, you know, one of the writers for the climate.gov ENSO blog. I'm also one of the NOAA uh, seasonal ENSO forecasters. So I'm, you know, one of about 11 forecasters. Each month we generate the, the ENSO forecasts um, for the coming seasons. Um, so predicting, you know, whether we have a, the probability of El Nino or La Nina. Um, and I also do a lot of research on climate predictability um, and, you know, again, often understanding how the impacts of El Nino may be predictable and how they may be changing in, in a future climate. Well, we are speaking to the right person. Diving in, diving into it. 
So I mentioned in the intro that I've I've been hearing about El Nino and La Nina my whole life. Nat, what is the what what is the history of El Nino as a concept? Where did it come from? Well, yeah, actually, um, <clears throat> the the phenomenon of El Nino is has been known long before science had any grasp of it. Um, for centuries, even Peruvian fishermen used to reap the benefits of the nutrient-rich waters off the west coast of South America. Um, But they would notice these periodic warm spells that would drive the fish away. And these periodic warm spells uh, would come usually around Christmas time. And so that's where the name El Nino comes. So it's in reference to the Christ child. And El Nino is the Spanish word for for boy child. Um, and it's important to, to recognize that because, you know, El Nino and La Nina have such a strong global influence, they have, I mean, literally helped to shape the course of human history. So, you know, we can look back at past uh, droughts, famines, and, and the, the political consequences and, um, and indications that, you know, El Nino, La Nina um, may have played some role in these uh, events. It wasn't until much later, so late 1960s, when the the science of El Nino started to become a bit more mature. Um, a famous meteorologist by the name of Jacob Bjorknes first recognized the the coupling between the tropical atmosphere and ocean that is uh, comprises this whole El Nino uh, Southern Oscillation phenomenon. Um, but then it was a little while later, so in the 1980s, that's when we really saw the surge of scientific interest in El Nino La Nina. Um, we had a, a big, uh, one of the biggest El Ninos of the 20th century in 1982-83. But back then, we didn't have the sophisticated prediction systems that we have now. We didn't have the theoretical understanding of El Nino. We didn't you know, fully understand the global impact. So essentially, we, we were witnessing the, the development of this event without having clear expectations of you know, what was going to happen. So it seems around that time and immediately after, um, we had this intense scientific focus on documenting the evolution of, of uh, El Nino, the global impacts, developing theories for understanding how and why it, it develops, and also improving our ability to predict it um, on, on you know monthly to seasonal timescales. And so that surge of scientific interest that began in the 1980s, um, it really hasn't let up. So we've really seen... Um, you know, try to, to unravel, you know, so many of the, the different facets of ENSO. So it remains um, a bit mysterious, but also very fascinating and also consequential for, for the global climate. So according to the blog, the latest uh, uh, entry in the ENSO blog, ENSO being El Nino uh, slash Southern Oscillation blog uh, put together by the NOAA team, um, it says that there is a 90% chance uh, this year of El Nino conditions. And I would like to, you know, I, when we talk about El Nino, I wonder if we could, if you could help. I, my, my sense is that El Nino is a description of a particular oceanographic and atmospheric condition that is characterized, and please fix this when I'm done, I think is indicates a higher sea surface temperature in the ocean. Uh, The El Nino describes that part. And the Southern Oscillation is a reference to the implications in atmospheric circulation patterns. Am I close or can you fix that? No, that's that's very good. I think you're you're right on. So um, El Nino 
specifically describes a, a warming of the ocean surface. So we have above average sea surface temperatures in the central and eastern tropical Pacific. And so what accompanies this warming of the eastern tropical Pacific is a, a change in the winds. So the trade winds, which blow from east to west, get weaker during El Nino. And so that's reflected in the southern oscillation. So the, the, a, a weakening of the pressure difference between the western and eastern Pacific that changes the winds. And also the, the rainfall, the cloudiness patterns shift. So areas like Indonesia get uh, tend to be much drier than average, um, whereas in the central equatorial Pacific near the international dateline tends to be wetter than average. So there's a, a redistribution of the patterns, the, the, the uh, circulation and the, the precipitation patterns that accompanies this warming in the eastern equatorial Pacific. And these changes that occur in the tropics can trigger these large-scale climate patterns that go into the extra tropics. So that's why we see these impacts over a you know, broad portion of the world, including over North America, is because the, the changes in the tropics trigger these larger-scale patterns that influence the weather and climate in the extra tropics. I see. You know, one of the things I love about the blog, Nat, is that uh, there's a bit of informality in the language here. Uh, as you said in the description, uh, that, that Enzo, this El Nino, is really like Abbott and Costello. There is no sea surface temperature implications without atmospheric temperatures. At Abbott is the atmosphere, <laughs> Costello is the ocean, Laverne and Shirley, Kanye and Kim, <laughs> Uh, these things go together. Uh, this actually helped me understand the relationship of this phenomenon between sea surface temperature and ocean circulation. Uh, and it also indicates that I also like the clarity of this language that the sea, uh, sea surface temperatures worldwide, has, as has been reported in the popular press, are sizzling is the word. Um, talk to us about what, what drives sea surface temperature uh, how long does it last? Like an El Nino, is it like a hot water month? Is it something that goes on for years? What what drives the variation in sea surface temperatures and therefore the implications for atmospheric circulation? What's going on? Yeah, so it's um, it, it's it, what drives it is a coupling between the atmosphere and ocean. So the um, there's there are feedbacks, positive feedbacks between the atmosphere and ocean. So the the um, atmosphere helps to push the ocean toward a warmer state in the eastern equatorial Pacific. Um, and then that warming of the eastern equatorial Pacific further helps to reinforce those wind anomalies. So it's these, this positive feedback that allows, you know, both El Nino and La Nina to amplify in time. But there's also delayed negative feedbacks. And so um, those negative feedbacks are what help to um, terminate the event. So typically, you know, the, an El Nino um, usually lasts for about a year. Um, you know, occasionally there have been events that have lasted more than one year. Um, La Nina, which is the cool phase, tends to be uh, tends to last a little bit longer. So there are more occasions where a La Nina might last two years. Um, and we just came out of a unusual three year. La Nina. So since 1950, there've only been three, three-year La Ninas, and we, we just came out of one right now. Um, and, and so that, that's, that's as long as they go. So basically one to three years. Um, and that's also um, why it's, I think, remarkable that the, the oceans 
you know, as I said, are sizzling. They're 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 remarkably warm because um, typically during a La Nina, uh, you know, all else being equal, that will tend to lower the global temperature or lower, including the global ocean temperature. So the fact that the oceans are already so warm, where we haven't even gone into El Nino, um, is uh, it's a little bit surprising. And I don't have a firm answer exactly why it has been so warm. But I will say that um, one of the implications is that when we have an El Nino, those global temperatures, both the ocean and land, tend to, to rise. So if we're already at a high level, and if we're going to go into an El Nino, that's only going to increase the chance of record-breaking global temperatures, both in the ocean and and over the land as well. Interesting. And I, I've got to I've got to follow up with this idea of the uh, equatorial Pacific. Um, is why why is that so significant? I mean, I can imagine it's the Pacific Ocean, a major feature here on planet Earth, um, but. Uh, there's water elsewhere. Um, is there a specific reason why the equatorial Pacific region is so important to these global ocean atmospheric patterns? Right. Well, you know, actually, we do see similar types of phenomena and feedbacks in the other ocean basins. Um, there's actually something known as an Atlantic Nino that is somewhat analogous to the, the classic El Nino, but they don't occur on the scale that they do occur in the Pacific. And part of the reason is because, you know, the tropical Pacific is much larger. Um, so a lot of the, uh, the, the tropical rainfall is occurring in the Pacific. Um, <clears throat> we also have um, strong upwelling of cooler waters in the Eastern Equatorial Pacific. And these sorts of, you know, the, the large scale and the, the sort of um, climatological features make it uh, easier for there to be large um, feedbacks in the system that, that can amplify anomalies and have a, a big impact. So, um, you know, the same sort of phenomena occurring in, in the Atlantic isn't going to induce as strong of a, a anomalies in the you know tropical atmosphere, for example, because it's just... Um, you know the smaller scale and and the the uh, just the 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 amount of you know rainfall that's occurring there in in the average conditions is just much smaller. Um, so really, it, it comes down to to uh, I think a lot of it comes down to the scale of the Pacific. You know, I gotta say, in my mind, I'm trying to visualize all of these currents and and temperatures and exchanges. And I'll tell you what, uh, Nat, you've got your work cut out for you here. This is a <laughs> complex problem. Uh, it's, it's just, uh, yeah, I'm, everything can influence everything else, you know? So it's just, you know, you're right. I can see why the Pacific has a huge influence, but the fact that this is happening elsewhere is interconnected, right? Like it's all like pressure, oh, you know, it's, it's one system. Yeah, and actually, I should also mention that one of the areas where there's been growing research is understanding this inner basin connection. So um, the idea that what actually what happens in the Atlantic can also impact the Pacific and what happens in the Indian Ocean impacts the Pacific. And those are so, sorts of connections we're still trying to understand much better. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we do have our work cut out for us and um, and we don't have all the answers at the moment. But it, it is really is fascinating because um, I think we're 
realizing that this inner basin connection may be more important than we originally thought. Yeah, I mean, I, as a follow up, I was thinking, you know, how the science of studying El Nino has really, surely, has been uh, transformed over, you know, since the 1980s when you described kind of a, a great focus. Um, I'm thinking about uh, satellites and, and you know, being able to use uh, sensors and things from space. But could you talk a little bit about that? Like, how has the the science of these phenomena evolved uh, since the eighties to the present. Right. Yeah. So th there's been, um, yeah, I mean, tremendous scientific growth. So as you mentioned, first of all, in our observing systems, so our ability to um, use, for example, satellites, as you mentioned, um, to get, uh, you know, since about the late 1970s, um, get information about rainfall over the tropical oceans that we never had before, um, satellite estimates of sea surface temperatures. Um, we also um, have uh, more buoy data that helps to give us uh, information about not just the ocean surface, but what's occurring below the surface. So this helps us both in our theoretical understanding of uh, El Nino-La Nina, um, as well as making predictions, because to make predictions, we need to have good initial conditions. So know what is the state of the climate right now? Um, so we can do that better now due to these, uh, these observational um, advances over the last uh, 40 years, you know, better than we could have in the past. Um, we're also seeing remarkable developments in our um, computer modeling. So, um, <clears throat> so I, I work at a lab where one of our missions is to create state-of-the-art global climate models. So, um, you know, I've, I've been able to see how, you know, our, our models are more powerful than they were, you know, 20, 30 years ago. You know, so they have, um, you know, a higher resolution. So the grid cells are smaller now, which allows us to resolve more, more processes um, more accurately, able to simulate the, this, this, the, um, the variability of El Nino, La Nina um, much better than we have, um, able to make predictions, accurate predictions out to longer time scales. So, um, so yeah, the, the increasing um, sophistication of our models and the increases in the computing power are helping our ability to, to, to simulate El Nino La Nina. And also, um, we've seen uh, um, a, a, a real growth in our data analysis methods, um, you know, um, machine learning, artificial intelligence, you know, neural networks, these sorts of um, applications or these sorts of methods can be also applied to studying climate phenomena, including ENSO. So, it's really, um, you know, we're seeing growth along different avenues, the observations, the modeling, the analysis techniques, and as well as the, the, our theoretical understanding too. So I think, um, you know, we established that theory, the sort of the basis in the 80s, but it's only you know, kind of, um, you know, we, we've been able to expand and to, to really refine these theories over time. Wow more data, more understanding. And yet at the beginning uh, in your opening, I really appreciated uh, the reference to the historic uh, understanding of the implications of this phenomenon down in Peru, as you mentioned, when the warm sea surface waters reached the, uh, the South American continent in the Pacific, the anchovies uh, don't uh, seek cooler water and move away from the shore and therefore 
uh, the fishing industry and the subsistence fishing communities along uh, South America are directly impacted. Uh, you mentioned also uh, the fact that there are residual effects around the world or historically you can see certain disruptions in, in so social conditions as a result of this phenomenon. Can you expand on that a little bit? I know we've got the computer model and the future impacts that we definitely want to get to, but I'm interested in when you look back through history, now understanding this phenomenon, what, what impacts uh, kind of empirically uh, do the meteorologists and, and the scientists at NOAA sort of see as a result of El Nino conditions? Right. So, um, yeah, that they're, you know, I, I think there, there are probably others who have looked at this a bit more closely, but there are times, um, for example, uh, you know, when we can identify when the um, South Asian monsoon was disrupted, which, um, uh, and, and typically when we have um, an El Nino, there's a, a weakening of that monsoon, which led to droughts and famines and, um, and, and some uh, of the, the um, you know some of the, some of the, the political changes that occurred in the um, you know going back seventeen hundreds eighteen hundreds even uh, you know for example the, the 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 conquest of the Incas um, was um, thought to be aided by perhaps um, El Nino and how the the winds allowed Pizarro to 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 reach inward into the the uh, as well as the changes in the um, the the uh, the rainfall along the coast, that was you know desert areas that were were normally quite dry were actually blooming, you know, which helped them to penetrate farther inland. So th those sorts of things have been uh, uncovered, um, and, and uh, you know, I think uh, uh, I, I believe there are, there are many other sorts of examples going through time through the centuries where there is believed that. Um, that El Nino and La Nina contributed to these sorts of events. So just a just an example, just some examples of how, you know, it, it can, you know, this phenomenon can help shape the, the course of history. Well, you know, I, it, we're really talking about the consistency of conditions and, and we adapt our lives and our societies, our farming culture to certain expectations of rainfall and weather patterns that allow us to, you know, produce food, for example, or to, irrigate crops. And, and when we, when we see these conditions occurring and they fluctuate, uh, the variability is a challenge for, you know, human society that you have to be able to adapt to conditions where it's suddenly much wetter or it's suddenly much drier or, or rain conditions have shifted or wind and other weather conditions have shifted. Uh, so it has great implication. And, uh, now that we are able to sort of describe it more technically, uh, to, with the, data and the supercomputer, the modeling and everything, we can kind of better see this thing. Um, why is it important for NOAA to invest the amount of capital and energy, emotional, technical, and scientific in understanding this weather pattern? Uh, why does it matter? What does it mean for modern society? What, what's driving the, the need to, to study and understand this condition? Right. Well, uh, I think, you know, as you mentioned, there, there, there are so many, um, you know, economic and societal implications of El Nino that those are only increasing. And yet we still, 
um, we, we still have room to improve our ability to uh, predict, um, to simulate and predict, and also especially understand how El Nino and its impacts may be changing in a warming climate. Um, so the, the potential is there for um, climate variability, including that of ENSO, to um, exacerbate the the sort of impacts that, that occur with, with a warming climate. So, um, for example, um, you know, so, uh, you know, with a warming climate, we are seeing rising sea levels, right? But um, El Nino also may be, uh, may increase the risk of high tide flooding along much of the, the both the West Coast and the East Coast. Um, so understanding, so we have a, a compound of uh, effects of, of both the long-term warming and the effects of El Nino. And so being able to predict these sorts of impacts, you know, seasons in advance, um, it could be potentially quite beneficial. And that, that's just one example, but you know, the same sort of uh, effects can apply to um, to crops. To um, you know, we have we're coming into hurricane season, so um, you know El Nino uh, has a significant impact on on both the Atlantic and Eastern Pacific hurricane seasons. So um, preparing for for hurricane season like that, um, it impacts spring severe thunderstorms. So um, potential to you know anticipate whether or not um, we. We should have a more active or, or inactive severe weather season. So I, I think it, there's still room to understand. May I ask a question? Yeah, sure. Is, is it fair to say that El Nino, La Nina are like the Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen combo <laughs> of the climate? It's like they're just the greatest of all time to like – in other words, when you when you're working with so I'm thinking about how interconnected all of these systems are, and we have in the past talked about sea level rise on this show, and in the past we've talked about uh, Arctic uh, melting, and uh, you know the impacts that that can have on ocean currents, you know, deep ocean currents, <laughs> and you know there's just so many systems and heat and uh, water and the atmosphere are moving around so, in so many interesting ways. And I'm, is like, is El Nino the big driver? Is this the MJ Pippin combo, just big driver of the whole system? I, I think that that's a, yeah, I think that's a fair analogy. And I just want, but just to note that it's especially true if you're thinking about, the what's what the predictable signal is. So, um, so I'll be clear that there are other climate patterns that have significant influence um, across you know across the globe, but many of these patterns are not predictable more than a few weeks in advance. Um, whereas El Nino, La Nina. Because they're tied to this coupling, the atmosphere and ocean, and this ocean slowly evolves, we're able to predict uh, to some degree the evolution of El Nino and La Nina, you know, several months in advance, even up to a year, possibly even more in some occasions. Um, 
so it's just a, you know, I, I just guess I just remind the listener that um, there are other patterns that can either enhance or interfere with the effects of El Nino and La Nina. And, and, you know, we, I, I think we saw this this past year, we had a, a La Nina and we were expecting that Southern California would be drier than average this past winter. Um, obviously that did not happen. We saw in basically California bombarded by atmospheric rivers throughout the winter. That's an example of there are important patterns that could interfere with the effects of the La Nina, but those patterns aren't necessarily predictable at the long time scales that El Nino and La Nina are. I can, you know, you've got to wonder how much energy, I mean, it, it, I'm kind of going back to some of the science that, that drives this particular weather pattern, the El Nino, La Nina uh, interplay. Uh, you know, the sun, I, I, I hate to sound stupid, but uh, the sun shines at the same rate all the time. Uh, radiant heat hits the planet kind of in the same way. That's a pretty consistent input. Um, I can't imagine how much energy it actually takes to raise the temperature of the, uh, the Pacific Ocean surface uh, or large areas of the Pacific Ocean surface, uh, sea surface, by a half a degree Celsius. I mean, that has got to be an, a tremendous amount of energy. Uh, is this sort of an understandable, when you look at it as an energy transference or an energy system, does that influence how you guys think through this as meteorologists and what's going on sort of uh, in, in this in this this oscillation, this transition between these two conditions of of cooler and warmer sea surface temperatures? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think we can, um, you know, we're able to quantify these energy transfers pretty well. But I think, you know, El Nino and La Nina. Um, primarily are kind of describing a redistribution of the, the heat. So, um, so you know, the, we have the, the warm pool in the Western tropical Pacific. Um, during La Nina, that warm pool is actually um, strengthening, whereas during El Nino, we see that warm air, I mean, that, that warm water um, shifting to the east. So we see uh, it's primarily through, you know, these patterns occurring through redistribution of, of heat, whereas in contrast to, to say, there's not know, more or less global climate change. Yeah. Where we're having it, you know, the, the, the long-term warming where we have this, you know, this energy imbalance that's leading to, to gradual warming of the oceans. So in contrast to that. So we're, we're going into the, the Atlantic hurricane season. I think NOAA just released its uh, prediction of a re, re, relatively average uh, a tropical uh, storm season in the Atlantic. Um, I, I've heard in the press and I kind of heard it, it isn't kind of in the rumor category that when there are El Nino conditions, the uh, the strength and frequency of the Atlantic hurricane uh, season or storms uh, tends to be repressed or suppressed. Uh, is that accurate? And could you offer some understanding if that's if that's the case? Right. So that that is the case. So typically during an El Nino uh, summer and fall, that that tends to suppress Atlantic hurricane activity. And um, one of the primary reasons is through the way it affects the the tropical winds and um 
And when we have an El Nino, it tends to increase the, the wind shear. So how much the winds change with height. And wind shear is the sort of thing that tends to break up, uh, tear apart um, tropical cyclones. So Atlantic hurricanes, they, they like to have low wind shear um, environments so that they can build without getting shredded apart. So, um, but it, I think it's important to, to keep in mind that this is only, El Nino would represent only one influence. So perhaps, you know, I haven't read the um, discussion of the, 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 the latest NOAA's Atlantic Hurricane Outlook, but it's possible that this El Nino would contribute a negative influence, but that may be countered by a, you know, other influences, um, you know, such as the local sea surface temperatures over the the Atlantic, which um, last I checked, was still pretty warm. So there might be some competing effects there. Nat, I'm, I'm curious to know what you keep your eye on here. Uh, we've been hearing a lot of media coverage, just buzz around this year's, the 2023 El Nino. Um, and I know there was just recently, as we record the show, a major tropical cyclone, I believe that hit Guam. Um, what are you, you know, as a meteorologist, what are you nerding out on <laughs> as you observe this, this sizzling 2023 El Nino? Yeah. So, um, at this point, you know, kind of looking at some of the, um, you know, the shorter term weather forecast, the sort of things that can help to jumpstart an El Nino. So, um, so, for example, you know, one of the big things that really helps getting to get an El Nino going is the so-called called westerly wind bursts. So when we have um, anomalous westerly wind, so that's coming, you know, from, you know, uh, coming from the west, these uh, help to initiate a sequence that would um, help to increase the, the surface temperatures in the eastern equatorial Pacific. Um, so um, yeah, I haven't checked the latest forecast, but um, we had seen some some westerly winds that you know, the sort of things that, that help to get the El Nino going. And, and in contrast, if we see in the short term forecast some of the the easterly winds um, along the the equatorial Pacific, that would tend to counter it. So you know these are sort of short term weather fluctuations. They're you know associated with different phenomena such as you know so called Mad and Julian oscillations. So you can think of um, Madden-Julian oscillation would be like the Michael Jordan on the subseasonal time scale, right? Um, so, um, so these sorts of things can act in interplay. So things that are occurring on these short time scales can interact with the El Nino that's occurring on the longer time scale. Um, but you know, I, I'm also just a uh, you know always um, you know one of my responsibilities here at at GFDL is to monitor our real time forecast each month. So I'm always curious to see how the, you know, the forecast evolves. Um, so the, you know, the model produced by GFDL called Spear, it's been just, I mean, um, it's, it's been, I think remarkable how warm it's been predicting the Eastern Equatorial Pacific um, for, the, for the coming fall and winter, given that, you know, typically it's challenging to predict El Nino and La Nina in the spring. Um, you know, there's just so many a number of factors that are, you know, making the signal hard to see. But, but our models are saying no, the the signal is is pretty clear. So, uh, I'm still trying to understand 
you know, why, you know, why are the models so aggressive on, on this El Nino? Um, so it, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see how this evolves. It says 90% chance, and I think that's what you're referring to is the, that is a high level of certainty in weather forecasting out, I think, is yes. that 90% certainty about what's going to happen is, is that's way up there. Um, my, I have a question about, um, you know, this is kind of gets into the policy part of this a little bit. Um, NOAA is, I think, the best federal agency in government. I think the scientists and the people who work at NOAA contribute so much to our understanding of the planet and, uh, and really help us make better decisions as a community uh, of Americans and, and internationally as well. Um, this is a case where we're, you're, you're studying this phenomenon, which is really not something we can manipulate. Uh, whether there are sea surface temperature changes or atmospheric circulation changes, these are obviously beyond the control of human beings. But understanding them and the implications of it uh, helps us kind of get a sense of what direction we're headed into over the next couple of years. The question I have is in, in within NOAA and within your team at GFDL, um, is there any kind of a, a sort of what it means in terms of policy or how the agency or the federal government should position assets or make certain kinds of decisions? Or uh, what is the fallout of understanding the uh, Enzo dynamic, the El Nino uh, Southern Oscillation dynamic? Uh, as the predictions get more certain, uh, what do you do with it? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for the average American? What does it mean for I don't know, the U.S. Navy or uh, coastal communities around the country. What, what do we do with this information? Um, yeah, I, I think it's just overall, it's promoting NOAA's mission to understand and to predict weather and climate better and to, to make our, you know, to, to foster a weather and climate ready nation. So, I, I mean, I, I think all the... The sorts of impacts we, we've already talked about, um, being able to anticipate the risks of, um, you know, the 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 effects of of extremes of um, you know droughts and floods and extreme heat and 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 rising sea levels and all these things. These are have tremendous amount of um, economic and societal benefits. And so, um, you know, I, I think we're just trying to um, be able to, um, I, I, you know, ultimately, I think it's it's to, to anticipate what's coming down the pike. Yeah, yeah. To 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 and, and to ultimately to um, sort of minimize the costs, reduce the costs of these, you know. Uh, the, the, these weather and climate disasters that, that do occur, um, if we can anticipate them, uh, then then it, it's going to bring you know a, a variety of benefits to to the nation. Wow! Yeah, you would hope. You know, we could do something with this understanding. It's so complicated. But um, I'm curious about you know in the in the in the in the crowd. I think you said there are uh, seven meteorologists at NOAA who are responsible for the Enzo forecast. And there is, is that right? Oh, 11, 11 forecasters. Yeah. Uh, so you had 11, uh, 11 dedicated folks on this thing. And then this whole GFDL lab, the, the uh, geophysical fluid dynamics lab, uh, which takes a close look at this particular 
uh, event or phenomenon. I wonder um, how this uh, pattern is impacted by climate change. Uh, it's an oscillating, it's a fluctuating system. Uh, are the amplitudes of the change getting bigger? Are the, is the normal, the norm, the average conditions shifting one way or the other? Are you, are you able at this stage to determine whether or not this system is adjusting to new conditions as a result? I want to just say global warming or climate change. Are you seeing some sort of unusual level of activity or intensity in the system that indicates to you the world is changing, that we're changing the world through this, uh, through, through these, these global greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And that's um, something that has been really challenging, but has been received a lot of attention in you know, the last decade or so. So, um, so I will note, first of all, the challenges. So one of the challenges is that El Nino La Nina has, you know, a large degree of natural variability. So, um, and we've seen this in, in our, our climate models where even if we don't change greenhouse gases, so keeping the, the radiative forcing fixed, we can see decades, even centuries where you might have active El Nino followed by decades or even, you know, a century where El Nino, La Nina aren't so active. So, and these are just chaotic natural fluctuations. And, and we only have basically reliable instrumental records going back to about 1950. Uh, we have some records going back farther to late 1800s, but, you know, it's a little bit more sparse and more uncertain. So that's not a lot of time to be able to detect um, significant changes for something that varies so much. Um, another challenge is that the, um, you know, when we look at our, our climate model simulations, the projected changes of El Nino involve various feedbacks. And some of the feedbacks would seem to act to enhance the variability of El Nino and La Nina, um, whereas some of them oppose. So we have these competing effects. And so when you look at um, at, at how El Nino La Nina is projected to change, um, we have to reconcile, um, you know, these, these offsetting effects. But with that said, there are some um, effects that seem to be projected to be robust. And, uh, and there is even, you know, some would argue some evidence in the observational record that we are seeing an increase in the variation of El Nino and La Nina. So, you know, bigger El Ninos, bigger La Ninas relative to the past. And that increasing greenhouse gases may be a, um, a, a factor in this. Although I'd say we haven't reached a point where we have a consensus on that, but there, there, there is at least some, some of the community who believe that this is the case. Uh, and I will say also looking at our latest state-of-the-art global climate models, but the majority of them now seem to indicate also that with increasing greenhouse gases, the variation of El Nino and La Nina is expected to increase. So more extremes of El Nino and La Nina. And, um, and even if we, you know, it, it, so that, that's in, in looking at the, the sea surface temperatures in the Eastern Equatorial Pacific. 
But even if the sea surface temperatures variations don't change, there's even more robust evidence that the the tropical rainfall associated with with El Nino La Nina that is supposed to see more that is expected to see more um, extreme variations, and because the the global scale impacts are tied to the rainfall that's occurring in the tropics, so that may have implications for um, more significant impacts from El Nino and La Nina in the future. And um, actually, one of my more, my recent studies was looking at the projected changes of the impacts of of ENSO. In, in one of the GFDL climate models. And consistently, you know, my study indicates that by the late 21st century, um, the, the, basically the impacts of El Nino and La Nina are projected to increase. Although the patterns are, um, you know, there, there's some subtle variations in the pattern. So it's not just pure strengthening or pure weakening. Um, and there's, you know, there's some complexities there. So, of course, it's a complex problem. It's, it's, you know, it's hard to reduce to a single sentence. But in general, I'd say evidence is pointing towards um, an increase in, in variability, more extreme El Nino-La Nina. But we're not at the point where I'd say we're 100% confident. And what would you, if, if I could snap my fingers and give you, like, a missing piece of information that you don't currently have... What would be, what what would be like the great mystery information that you would want to see? Uh, would it be some sort of new modeling technology, a new realm of data that we don't understand currently? What 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 mysteries would really help unlock this for you? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, yeah, I so there you know there's so many things I'd have to if if I had to pick one I'd have to to think about this, but I'll just mention. So I, I, I mentioned that one of the challenges is that our instrumental record is not very long. So if we could extend it back farther, you know, you know, a few centuries, that would be very helpful. So we could truly characterize the variability of ENSO over a long period of time. And I will note that we, we have reconstructed ENSO variability back in time using paleoclimate proxies. So... Um, using, for example, tree ring data and especially from coral data. So that's been actually quite helpful. Um, and, and actually, I think the, the coral proxy uh, reconstructions do support that the variation of uh, ENSO has increased in the, the recent times relative to, to the distant past. Um, but those reconstructions you know, are not as reliable as the instrumental record. Um, another... You know, it, it would be great if we could improve our climate models to, um, you know, to eliminate some of the the, the 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 pervasive biases that exist. So, our climate models are, you know, they they're very sophisticated. They're um, they're very useful, and they can simulate and so pretty well, but they still have problems. Um, one of the problems is is so called cold tongue bias. So the eastern equatorial Pacific is generally colder than the surrounding areas. Um, and that re- relates to the, the upwelling of colder water from below the surface to the surface. So, um, so that's the, you know, what we call the cold tongue. And climate models today, most of them have a bias where the cold tongue is too cold. 
And so that impacts the simulation of ENSO and also adds uncertainty in the projected changes because that affects you know, the feedbacks that are responsible for ENSO. So if we could um, improve our models to, to reduce some of these, these biases, um, and that might come with you know, partially through increasing the resolution. So as computing power grows and we can make grids that are smaller and smaller, maybe some of these biases will diminish and eventually go away. Um, so I think, yeah, maybe those are kind of maybe, maybe two on the top of my wish list if they could magically happen. That's very, very helpful. Uh, I wanted to, you know, before we wrap up, I have one, one last question I wanted to ask you. Uh, when we see these systems fluctuate like this and we're uh, moving into this El Nino conditions, as you say, that could very well last from one to three years in duration, uh, it changes weather patterns, it changes rainfall. And uh, I'm just trying to think about, the, uh, are there anybody, are there any communities out there or parts of the world that generally uh, cheer when these conditions arise, I think I would expect that the Peruvian fishermen along the shoreline uh, in South America are not pleased when when uh, El Nino conditions arise because the anchovy harvest uh, changes and the, the fish move away. Uh, maybe the folks in the Atlantic Basin are like, well, maybe there's a few less hurricanes. That's good. but can you talk a little bit about uh, is there something at, at communities that benefit? from the development of El Nino conditions or that, that find it favorable uh, to uh, things they want to have happen? Sure. I, I think um, it, 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 El Nino conditions could be quite favorable um, and partially depends on the you know, conditions that immediately preceded the El Nino. So, for example, um, you know, El Nino typically at least the wetter conditions in the Southwest. Um, you know, of course we've already had some drought busting rains this year, but if we're in the midst of a, a long drought, like we had been, you know, seeing those, um, the increasing precipitation from, from El Nino would be helpful. Um, and, um, you know, Canada, uh, during El Nino tends to be warmer than average. So I'd say the risks of, extreme cold in the winter time over much of the northern north america um likely would be reduced um yeah so um you know so it depends i mean so if you were you know previously um you know like experiencing drought and, and el nino brings rainy conditions that's beneficial if you were too wet and then El Nino brings dry conditions that could be beneficial. So, um, yeah, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, it, it's not all doom and gloom when it comes to uh, these variations. So I, I think there are a you know, number of potential uh, benefits. I got I to ask you, Tyler, one more, because in the pre-show you were talking about growing up in Southern California and how all the surfer dudes were really happy when they said it was El Nino. I mean, what, <laughs> what, what was that about? Did that true, was that true, Tyler? Did that prove to be true? Do you have a sense of that? Well, I mean, that's, I mean I've got to say that's part of what really motivated me to want to do this show is that, no, it doesn't always turn out to be true. And I think Nat has explained that there are other patterns that can have a more immediate impact on your specific 
weather slash climate conditions in your specific space. But um, I remember, yeah, as a kid, I just I have this distinct memory of walking to English class first period. And I won't say the person's name, but one of my water polo teammates was walking the opposite direction away from the classroom, like stoked out of his mind saying that he was headed to the beach and he said, dude, I'm going to the beach. It's El Nino, man. And I'm going to, I'm going to ride it. <laughs> I love that. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of, I just, that sticks out in my mind. I don't know if, you know, if I, I, my understanding is perhaps the, the big waves that he was experiencing and so stoked for, uh, were absolutely connected with the El Nino conditions but that there are lots of other uh, ripple effects that produce other patterns that um, probably drove those waves in too. Is that right, Nat? Yeah, Nat. That, yeah, that, that, absolutely. That, that sounds right. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, and that's why, you know, the bottom line is when we issue outlooks related to El Nino, um, seasonal outlooks in general, they're always in terms of probabilities. So, you know, El Nino may enhance the probabilities of, for example, um, a below average Atlantic hurricane season or may enhance the probability of a wet Southern California or increased uh, um, swells that you know, are, are good for the surfers. I mean, I saw that too, I lived in, in, in Hawaii, but it's always just in terms of probabilities because there's always the chance that these other factors can um, in the short term can can you know dominate over the effects of El Nino. We live in a probabilistic world. Is that what all the quantum mechanical experts are telling us? It's all probability. There is no certainty. There is no objective <laughs> reality, and it's true when it comes to the weather. Uh, what a cool uh, conversation, uh, Nat. We really appreciate us uh, you taking us uh, in a little bit of a tour of the El Nino La Nina conditions and the southern oscillation um, i actually tyler come out of this thinking i actually have a better grasp than i did before we started me too i'm glad to hear that Great. thank you so much <laughs> ladies and gentlemen it's dr nathaniel johnson he is a, a meteorologist with my favorite agency NOAA. he works at the geophysical and fluid dynamics laboratory in princeton new jersey nat thank you so much for joining us on the american shoreline podcast and Hey, as conditions change and the models get interesting, let us know. We'd love to have you back on and explain to us what's going on in the global weather patterns around the world. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you so much for having me.